Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm so glad that we're going to have a couple hours today together. We got a great show planned. So I am always delighted to talk to Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is a senior pastor um, in Murdoch, Nebraska. Brent, welcome. Hi, Bill. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Shalom. Amen. Yeah. So we're going to talk today about uh, Christianity is not in any one political camp, is it? Uh, no, it's not. Which makes no. me happy. Yeah, that's a good thing. But, you know, what's interesting in Luke's gospel, Luke, he's not only an evangelist, he only proclaims the good news of Jesus being the savior of all sinners, but another aspect of Luke's gospel. And, you know, he also wrote Acts. He, one of his themes is that he wants to, he wants to be, he wants to show that Jesus and Christianity are not politically subversive. And I, I want to do a flyby of that today with you and your Please do. listeners. Yeah, I want to hear what you have to say. So let's get started. Okay, well, you know, when you read Luke's Gospel, right off the bat, you, you see something in chapters 2 and 3, and it's this. Um, he connects the birth of Jesus and the beginning of John's John the Baptist's ministry with certain rulers in the Roman world. Um. So he, he's very interested in dates and historical facts, but there's more to this. Um, Luke is aware, like we are in our culture right now in our country, <laughs> it's parallel universe almost. Luke is aware that the secular Roman world and the importance of Rome's attitude toward the emerging Christian church is, is very important. Because since the days of Julius Caesar, I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, the Roman government had granted favors to Jewish settlers in the empire. Now, so the big question would be, what would Rome's attitude be toward Christians who, at the moment when Luke's writing and years after, are experiencing persecution from these Jewish settlements? Would Rome do the same? All right. Let me back up just a little bit more if I could. Um, the references to Roman empire, emperors by Luke, like, for example, in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, you have Luke telling us that there was a decree for a sentence, a census mm -hmm. that was issued by Octavian, who was later known as dun, da, da, Caesar Augustus. We learn in Luke 3 that John the Baptist began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Octavian's successor, Tiberius Caesar. And we know from Acts 11 that there was a famine that took place in Judea when Claudius was emperor. And it's that same emperor um, that excluded or banished Jews from Rome. And that's just mentioned in Acts chapter 18, which Luke wrote as well. And let's not forget everybody that, that Paul, as a Roman citizen by birth, appealed to the Caesar known as Nero in Acts 25, in Acts 26, in Acts 27. So, in other words, the only, well, let me, 
what I'm trying to say not very well is when when we learn about all these emperors that Luke is listing, there's only one that he kind of leaves out, and that's Caligula, uh, who ruled from 37 to 41 AD. Okay, so my point is Luke's not just a name dropper here and not just dropping dates and just historical facts for the sake of historical facts. Yes, he's a careful historian, Luke is, and he connects the events of Christianity with secular dates and rulers. That's true. But there are several clues in his gospel and in Acts, which I'm going to go over with you guys, Good. that Luke is an apologist. That is to say, he's a defender of the Christian faith. That is to say that Jesus and Christianity are not politically subversive. So that he would defend Christianity from the claim from a lot of people that being a Christian was incom incompatible with being a good citizen. Because at this time, there's no doubt that certain officials in Rome and all over the Roman Empire would be looking with suspicion at these Christians and their faith, Christianity. All right. So when you read Luke's gospel, what do we find? We find Luke emphasizing something very strongly. And what is it? It's toward the end of his gospel. It's the innocence of Jesus. I know our, our, our readers, our listeners know this. But I want to push this to the hilt. Let's not forget that, you know, Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, they refer to our Lord's hearing before the Sanhedrin, and they also record his trial before Pilate. But it's only Luke, it's only Luke, who includes our Lord's appearance before who? You guys remember? It's Herod Antipas, mm. the ruler of Galilee. That's in Luke 23 verses 6 through 12. So Luke is suggesting, I would contend, the agreement of Pilate, a Roman official, and Herod, a Jewish official, on the innocence of Jesus. And so in Luke 23, uh, for example, verses 4, uh, verses 14 to 15, and verse 22, let's not forget that Luke has Pilate saying over and over again that Jesus is innocent. And to be precise, if my math is correct, Pilate declares Jesus innocent three times. And it's all against what accusations? Well, it's these accusations that we read about in Luke 23, that we found this man, and notice the language here, misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He, listen carefully, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And Pilate says three times, I don't find him guilty of that. You see what I'm getting to? Getting oh, yeah. Here? Oh, yeah. I'm liking right. this. All right. Now let's have some more fun with this. Um, continuing with Luke's gospel, Luke also mentions our Lord's innocence when? So after Pilate, it's when Jesus is hanging on the cross, when one of the criminals that's crucified with Jesus says what? Do you remember this, folks? It's Luke 23, verse 41. The criminal says, this man, referring to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. <laughs> uh, and let's push it even further. So um, the Roman centurion, you remember, in Matthew's account, and that's Matthew 27, verse 54, and in Mark's account, 
Mark 15, 39, recognizes Jesus as, do y'all remember? The centurion in Matthew and Mark's account says that Jesus is who? The son of God. But how does Luke record it? Luke records an additional piece of information that the centurion praised God. And folks, do you remember what the centurion said in Luke's gospel about Jesus after he died? Depends on your translation. I'll give you two translations. The Roman centurion said, certainly or truly, this was a righteous man or an innocent man. Hmm. Bingo. That's Luke 23, 47. So what I'm trying to say is that in Luke's gospel, he is keen to show or he wants to emphasize very much uh, or underscore, if you will, the innocence of Jesus, although he had been condemned to death by a Roman court of law, and even though he was crucified as a common criminal. So this is huge, I think, in Luke's gospel. It is. So if, and I love the homework you're doing on this, Brent. This is fascinating. Well, this would be an important point for Luke to make in the first century. And I think it's an important point for us to make in the 21st century, namely the innocence of Jesus. Um, if anybody's investigating Christianity, you can push this to the hill uh, because people investigate Christianity as a possible threat, don't they? Mm -hmm. Today and even back then, you know, in Luke's day. So Luke wants to stress this big time. I also love, Brent, how we knew that Jesus was without fault and completely innocent. And all this is being repeated over and over by multiple people. Right. And I can't emphasize enough that those accusations that they made against Jesus, and, and it fits with what Luke's trying to, to point. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he's Christ, a king, stirs up the people, teaches, implying that it's all false teaching. In other words, to use our language here in 21st century America over the last year or two, he's an insurrectionist, and so are the Christians. Mm -hmm. And so they would be demonized. And Luke is saying, nope, 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 nope. Uh, Pilate said he was innocent. In fact, Pilate even quotes Herod, if you read the text very carefully, that Herod found him not guilty as well. In Pilate's, uh, when you know, that one time when Pilate said he's not guilty. Mm -hmm. Oh, fascinating. Okay, Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest. We're going to take a little break when we come back, continuing this very interesting uh, discussion on Jesus and being not only innocent, but made innocent many times by the witnesses but also um, that there's no political divide with Jesus. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much for becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Welcome back to the show. I'm with Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is the senior pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. All right, Brent, you've sort of taken me uh, off guard a little bit with this topic just because it is uh, so interesting. You're doing a fantastic job of connecting the dots with what Luke is teaching in this passage um, about the innocence of Jesus. So good. 
So where do we go? Where do we go next? Well, this is delicious. And just to recap, and then we'll move on to the okay. Luke's, Luke's writing of Acts. So what we observed before the break is that Jesus is innocent. He's declared to be innocent against all kinds of accusations, that he's a political subver subversive, etc. Um, he's so Pilate declares him innocent. And with his with his declarations, he includes Herod. Um, the, the thief on the cross says, this man's done nothing wrong. And the Roman centurion said, certainly this man was innocent. So the innocence of Jesus, to recap what we did in the first period, the first half, the innocence of Jesus then would be um, an important point then to make to anyone who was investigating Christianity as a possible threat to the Roman political establishment. All right, so now let's move on. So as Luke stressed our Lord's innocence in his gospel, so then in Acts, he continues to emphasize the political innocence. That is to say, they're not political subversives of, who do you think? The followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. And they're referred to as the way, of course, in the book of Acts. And in Acts, Luke traces the expansion of the early Christian church from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, Caesarea, Antioch, Greece, and then ultimately to, to Rome, where Paul goes. And he often stresses, this is interesting in Acts, if you read it carefully, Luke is careful to emphasize and stress the response of Roman officials, Roman government officials to the Christian message. So, for example, two of these officials, one would be towards the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey, and then another one would be shortly before Paul reached Rome. These two officials are favorably impressed by Paul's message. So, for example, I'll give you the names now. Sergius Paulus on the island of Cyprus, Luke tells us he was converted in Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 12. And Publius, he was a governing official on the island of Malta. Remember, Paul was shipwrecked on Malta. Mm -hmm. If he wasn't converted, I mean, the text doesn't explicitly say that he was converted. At least he presented gifts to Paul. And when they embarked on their travels again back on a ship, he made sure that they had everything that they needed. And that's in Acts chapter 28, verses 7 through 10. Now, between those two incidents that I just mentioned, Paul's message of the Lord Jesus Christ is brought to a lot of people's attention, uh, in particular officials, both local officials in the empire and then Roman officials in general. And each time, each time, Paul is exonerated <laughs> with an added implication. And this is important. When Paul is exonerated, you have an added implication that the Christian faith and the Christian church is, is politically innocent of charges of, to use our language of today, insurrection or treason. So these incidences, these in-between times, include Paul's release by the magistrates at Philippi, and that's recorded in Acts 16, verses 35 to 39. Then there's another account when Paul is discharged before Gallio, the Roman proconsul of Achaia, and that's in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 17. And then you have 
the admission of two Roman governors. I read this is just like Pilate now, two Roman governors in that sense, like Pilate, governors, Felix and Festus. And Paul, before these two governors, had been unjustly accused in Jerusalem and in Caesarea. This is recorded in Acts chapter 23, verse 29, in Acts chapter 24, verses 22 to 27, and Acts 25, verses 24 to 27, and Acts 26, verse 32. I want to repeat what I just said here about that, that before Felix and Festus, Paul was unjustly accused in Jerusalem and Caesarea, but later exonerated. In the final scene in Acts, it's in Acts chapter 28, which I think everybody knows, and the verses I'm, I'm thinking about in particular are verses 30 to 31. Where do we find Paul? We find him in Rome, and he's under house arrest. That is to say he has freedom, freedom to teach and preach without major hindrances, if you will. The point I'm trying to make here is that Luke is trying to give a clear indication that Rome, politically speaking, Rome, politically speaking, sees no conflict between its political policies and Christianity. So if I can summarize what I've covered here just in a real quick flyby, is that the general uh, effect, if you will, of these clues that I've referenced in Luke, in his gospel, and in Acts, is this. That while Luke certainly has other purposes in mind, with these clues, he's attempting also to answer the charge. When people make the charge, the Christianity is the enemy of the Roman state. And Luke is saying, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. So that was, that was the main thing I wanted to cover. Well, you did a fantastic job of covering it. And I have to say, you're quite good at pronouncing names, too. <laughs> I, want to say you, I want to say you've worked at that to get some of those names down, right? Oh, and you've been a pastor over 30-some years. You? <laughs> yeah. So Now, ha having said all that, Bill, okay. this doesn't mean, you know, I, I don't want to give our, our listeners the impression that, okay, so the governing officials left the early Christians alone. Not, not, not necessarily. They were persecuted heavily, okay? And, and does it, I'm not trying to give the listeners the impression that we in America are going to be left alone. Uh, and they're going to they're going to hear this. They're going to read the New Testament and see what I've or hear what I've said. Are they going to leave us alone? No. Why not? Because in Luke's day and in our day, it's a parallel universe. Generally speaking, civil authorities think that they're gods. They mm. think that they're little divinities. Yeah. And Christianity and Jesus are indeed a threat, as we are seeing right now today. Okay. And, you know, this, this is just par for the course. Um, so I wanted to make this point. You know, Jesus in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 says, you know, blessed are you and they persecute you falsely on account of my sake and my name. And in John 15, you know, remember Jesus says, you know, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Mm -hmm. but remember in Matthew 5, Jesus is counted all for joy, but that's how they treated the prophets who went before you, you know. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say, not very well, so you got to have mercy on this old man, is that yeah, they're going to go after us, even though Jesus was innocent and Christianity is innocent. Uh, it's not politically subversive, although it will be treated politically subversive because we worship Jesus. 
not the state. The state's not God. Jesus is. So they're going to come after us. And when they do, we're just going to suffer it. And I like to say it this way. that when No matter what it is, you remember Jesus in the Gospels always says this. You're going to be brought before governing authorities. You are. <laughs> and uh, when we are brought before governing authorities and they ask us, are you a Christian? You know, like when, when they asked, when the servant girls asked Peter at the bonfire, you know, yeah. <laughs> when she was arrested. When they, you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? We're not going to do the Peter thing and collapse and cave. We're going to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. Would you like to believe in him too? <laughs> <laughs> and then be prepared to suffer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I wanted to make sure I made both those points. Yeah, and excellent points. And there will be persecution. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. So there will be affliction. There will be trouble. There will be persecution. Every time you take a stand for Christ, you, you will you will have people pushing against you. And I think Paul says, you know, I count it joy that I can suffer, that I've been able to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. And truly, I think we're going to learn that in the United States very quickly here. I hope I'm wrong, but I think that's coming quite soon. Yeah. Say more about that observation. Well, I want to repeat what I said earlier, um, maybe in a different way. Okay. Um, people on both sides of the aisle, politically speaking now, they make the same mistake, Bill. I mean that. And what's the mistake? Is that politics is salvific. Politics is salvational. Government saves. No, it doesn't. Government has boundaries. Government only has to deal with certain things in this world. Read Paul's letter to the Romans, and you'll learn about what, why God created civil authority. It's to punish criminals and to commend those who do good. You know, we pay our taxes. Why? So they can, like, build roads, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, Politics is not salvific. Only Jesus is. That's it. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, this, this is the challenge that we have as American citizens because it's so passionate and it's so emotional that we think a politician is going to be our savior. No, no, no. Better not go that way. It'll, it'll end badly. Yeah. Jesus alone saves. I love that. And, and Brent, I love the word salvif salvific, but not everybody knows what that means. It means it doesn't save. So politics doesn't give you salvation. Right. Only Jesus does. Yeah. Politics only does certain earthly things that God has prescribed. And the problem is, is that politics, speaking in general and politicians, want to exceed those boundaries and act as if they are gods and can do anything and everything. And we're tempted to believe it. Yeah, absolutely. Don't do it, folks. Yeah. All right, Brent, you always come with fire for me. I love it. Thanks, Bill. Peace be with you. Peace be with you and shalom, my brother. If you want to receive a daily email featuring a scripture graphic, you can sign up for uh, at for the verse of the day at myfaithradio.com. I think you should do it. I think it's great. And if you want to share your faith radio story, is if faith radio has become a part of your daily journey with God, we'd love to hear your story. You can share how God is using faith radio to encourage you and to help you grow. You can do that also at MyFaithRadio.com. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. 
Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. So what exactly is heresy? And uh, and what does the Bible have to say about it? I know the, the Webster's Dictionary would say, they would say that heresy is it adherence to a religious opinion contrary to church dogma. And a second definition would be, is dissent or deviation from a dominant theory, opinion, or practice? That's what our topic is today with Dr. Alex McFarlane. You can always learn more about Alex at alexmcfarlane.com. Alex, welcome. Well, thank you, Bill. It's always a, a privilege to be on Faith Radio and to converse with you. Well, thank you so much. Well, you know, when you hear the word heresy, some people think of uh, like medieval torture chambers or trials of some kind, but uh, there, that was certainly a period of church history. But let's talk about heresy today. Yeah, I mean, um, people might associate that word with like crazed people being on some witch hunt to, you know, persecute somebody simply because there's a, a minor bit of disagreement or something like that. But really, in terms of Christianity, there there are some basic uh, truth claims of Christianity that one has to acknowledge if one is going to become a Christian. Things like the the deity of Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that on the cross he died for the sins of the world, and we come into a relationship with Christ by putting our faith in Jesus. Also, that the Bible is the Word of God, and it's not merely that the Bible contains the Word of God, but know that the Bible is the Word of God. And, Bill, this is kind of the... Um, the uh, irreducible minimum below which we do not go. Uh, the Word of God, the Son of God, being born again to become a child of God. And if we deviate seriously from, from these basics of the Christian faith, in which people are free to do that, people are free to turn away from what Christ has revealed, but it's no longer Christianity. In fact, there's a Greek word, the word heresy means... Um, it really means a thing chosen. Hmm. Um, we can choose truth or we can choose something other than truth, but um, every generation, really every generation of Christians has to recommit itself to being the custodians of true truth, biblical truth, uh, orthodoxy, not heresy. And uh, I, I would say, Bill, that we're in a time when the preservation of truth is perhaps more critical than at any other previous time in our lifetimes. I would agree completely, Alex. And in and I think it's Acts 24, t- talks about, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they called a sect. So they were, they were Christians are, were being called heretics by the Jews. Yes, isn't that something? Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I was studying this because there there are a lot of hot button issues. I mean, things that you know, I, I will grant you if you speak bold, clear, unequivocal truth, it can be very volatile. I realize that. I mean, if if you say you know, marriage is between a man and a woman, and you, you know, all homosexual activity in the eyes of God is sin, 
Now, God loves people. Whosoever will may come. Promiscuous heterosexuals can be forgiven. I mean, but if you come out for things the Bible is very clear about, it's going to really make some people angry. Uh, even things like creation. Um, Bill, um, I'm, I'm not ashamed at all to say, and I, I mean, I've spent you know 30 years studying this, hundreds of visits to hundreds of libraries, and published 19 books and interviewed dozens and dozens of scholars on all sides of the issues. Bill, I believe that when the Bible says God created in six literal days and rested on the seventh, I believe that. Mm -hmm. um, just even as you and I record, there's a pretty major Christian leader back east who's come out believing in theistic evolution. And he says there's no conflict between evolution and Scripture. But, and, and I, I don't want to get us off on this topic necessarily, but in a, an evolutionary worldview, evolution depends on death for there to give rise to new species of life. The less fit die off, the, the, the more fit evolve. But in the Christian worldview, there was no death before the fall of Genesis 3. And so really, I mean, it might sound convenient and it might placate, um, you know, church members, but evolution and biblical creation, biblical cosmology are not compatible. But, but here, here's what I'd like to say, that I, I notice we're in a time where even Christian leaders, they'll, they'll write me and they'll say, um, well, you know, it's not it's not dogma, but it's the search. What matters is the search and heresy, Bill. Heresy carries with it a kind of false humility that heresy denies the knowledge of truth in favor of the alleged search for truth. Um, but but it's what you're saying is the destination is that there's no destination. Mm hmm. My my denial of dogma is the dogma that there is no dogma. <laughs> well, you know, well said. And so, so my point being is, look, every person commits themselves to some sort of position. The question is, is it a biblical position? And I've had even even Christians or professed Christians say to me, well, you know what, I, I I'm just not qualified to say something definitive. I really think the important thing is being sincere about your journey. Whoa. Well, no. I mean, we can be clear where the Bible has been clear and where the Word of God... And by the way, I would say compelling lines of evidence point to the authenticity of Scripture. And so when it comes to our origin, our purpose, our destiny, how we know the true and living God, how we are to live... You know, what is morality, marriage, family, church, salvation? The Word, the word of God has been eminently clear on these things. And I guess my point in having this conversation is just to warn people, don't be lulled into a complacency about the, the false humility of, of heresy. Uh, we don't need to be cocky or arrogant, but where the Bible has spoken clearly, we need to believe, and we also need to take that clear, unequivocal stand as well. Mm -hmm. Dr. Alex McFarlane is my guest. 
talking about heresy and you know regarding Christianity and heresy Alex second uh, Peter 2 1 says there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who brought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction so when we talk about what's going on today I can't remember a time where I think I've been aware of more false teachers and more false messengers than right now. Yeah, you're you're right. And and let me just say this, heresy markets itself as quote the new genuine. Yeah, true. You know, oh the old old story, you know, oh the the blood and repentance and Jesus is the only way. Uh, but but honestly in this modern era, come on Bill, it's the 21st century. You know, the 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 more important issue is tolerance and love and i mean come on who's to say what's really real well the the word of god and it, it's interesting that like peter warned us about so many centuries ago that near the end of time there will be people think about this that which is inauthentic will insist that it is the authentic <laughs> mm -hmm. see jesus the only risen savior scripture the revealed Word of God, that is what's authentic. And yet we're living in a time when professed Christians and even ordained clergy, sometimes they are, you know, very shrewdly and uh, smoothly setting forth something inauthentic, telling people this is what is the authentic. Yeah. And Alex, it seems that that produces more division than anything else. Well, and even worse than that, it misleads people. Yes. I mean, there are people, I, I've conversed literally with thousands of people that say, well, you know, my pastor, I mean, he's he's a pastor, and he doesn't have a problem with, you know, fill in the blank, transgenderism, yeah. whatever, mm -hmm. you know. But um, let me just say this, that the most important thing that we need is a church that is willing, yes, lovingly, patiently, but unequivocally to say, uh, I know where I stand because I know where the Bible stands. And the Bible says what it says. We proclaim it, we believe it, and we will never deviate from it. Mm -hmm. And Alex, if you have a disagreement in the church, that, that doesn't make it heresy. I, I think when heresy uh, shows up is when the, the understanding is in defiance of, of clear biblical teaching. Right. Yeah. And and we we should not disagree disagreeably. And w whenever you have humans, I mean, there are going to be differences of opinion on ancillary things. It's like Augustine said, you know, uh, we're, you know, uh, in all things, love and charity, color of the carpet, style of music, you know, even things like the church schedule or whatever. Um, I mean, we can give grace and give space in any of the non-essential things. But when you're talking about the atonement and what it means to be a believer, uh, you know, being born again, um, when we're talking about the nature of morals and and it's called natural law, you know, Romans 2, 14 and 15 and well, Romans 1, 18 and following and Romans 2, 14 and following. 
Uh, it talks about when the Gentiles who did not have the law of God instinctively by nature do the things prescribed by the law, it shows that the law is written on every heart. And, um, you know, the Bible is very clear about uh, right and wrong. The Bible is very clear about what is marriage, what is family, what is human sexuality. The Bible is very clear about even, you know, the, na the, the nature of the church, the nature of Israel. So many things that are really the uh, potentially explosive issues today. And we have to remember it's nobody's opinion. It's not anybody's preference, but it's God's revelation. And we have to, in every generation, uh, R.C. Sproul said this many years ago. There was 40-something years ago, around 1980, there was um, a big gathering in Chicago, Illinois, Norm Geisler, R.C. Sproul, James Kennedy, Josh McDowell, a lot of names that people would be familiar with, met John MacArthur, and they, they had the Chicago Council on Biblical Inerrancy, that the Bible is the in, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And Sproul said, in, in every generation, we have to recommit ourselves and restate our fidelity to the, the infallible Word of God. And I think we have to do that again, that um, the Bible is not just a book of uh, selected suggestions that I'm to peruse. And I, you know, I, I was talking to a young pastor, Bill, who said, you know, I, we were talking about some of the real black and white things that you have to take a stand on. And he said, well, you know, there's just some things in the Bible that, quote, don't resonate with me. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? He goes, there are some things that just don't resonate. I said, well, is is it true or is it false? And he said, well, I'm not going to say it's false because it's the Bible, but I just, I choose to, you know, uh, focus elsewhere. But Jesus said in John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. And uh, I, I think part of the reason that the church in America is not as robust as she could be is because of the, the lax and selective way that the Bible is often handled. I mean, it's not a cafeteria line where you can take the entree that tastes good and skip the uh, Brussels sprouts that you don't like. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got to take the Word of God in its entirety. And it, it does take, I understand it takes teaching and some careful, um, you know, parsing out of, you know, okay, here's some things that were under law for ancient Israel. We're under the new covenant. But still, salvation, morality, um, what it means to be sanctified, to pursue holiness. Um, the Bible is very clear. Uh, I just wonder how clear our pulpits are in proclaiming these things. Excellent point. Dr. Alex McFarlane is my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion on heresy and the question i have for alex when we come back is how do we guard against it we'll be right back hi this is bill i thought this interview was so good i wanted you to hear it again so enjoy
Welcome back to the show. So glad to be talking to Alex McFarland. We're chatting about heresy today. You know, at a certain point, Alex, you you would go and you would hear from your pastor, and maybe you would hear from a teacher of a Bible study. But today, with the internet, you can hear from twenty thousand people. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That that's true. You can get a lot of opinions and a lot of perspectives, and I think the possibility for heresy is now exponentially really high. So how do we guard against it? Well, uh, the Word of God, you know, the, the word canon, we, Bill, we often talk about the canon of Scripture, meaning the uh, 66 books that comprise the Bible, 39 Old Testament, 27 New, the canonical books of Scripture. Uh, but the word canon can mean measuring stick. And to your question, Bill, the way that we guard against heresy is we have uh, an objective, uh, absolute things by which we can measure truth claims. I do a little exercise in my youth biblical worldview weekends. I'll get, you know, like a big bright red ribbon or yellow ribbon, and I'll say, how many people think that you could um, cut a, a three-foot piece of, of this ribbon? And I, I have kids come up on stage, and, and, and I'll say, okay, a yard three feet, 36 inches. And invariably, I've never had this fail. You know, you'll have three kids cut a length of ribbon and they'll all be three, three different lengths. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, wow. So you think yours is three feet? You think yours is three feet? Yes, yes, yes. Say, so, but, but they're all different. How can we know? And kids will be saying, you know, get a ruler, get a yardstick. And I'm like, what? Do what now? And, and I'll (laughs) mess them. And, I, I have a yardstick. I have a bright yellow aluminum yardstick on the stage. And they'll say, if you want to find out which one is really three feet, you need a yardstick. And I'll say, I don't believe in yardsticks. I, and, you know, I get the kids shouting and everything. And um, so I'll say, look, they're all three different. One of these might be right, but they, it's potential that all three could be wrong. And they're like, yeah. So I'll reach around the table and I'll pull out a yardstick. And I give the kids a prize for participating. But here's the thing. The measuring stick tells me what is on the mark or what what is off the mark. And that's, I think, why the Lord gave us the canon of Scripture. Because, you know, there's some things that are fairly innocuous. It doesn't matter. I mean, if somebody, you know, uh, whatever, uh, dietary habits, um, that's not necessarily going to determine your eternal destiny. But when it comes to things like who is God, the Trinity, Christ, the Son of God, the atonement, um, you know, what is what is discipleship? Um, yeah, we're talking about the souls of people and, and it behooves us to always make sure that our conclusions are drawn from God's revelation, not from man's speculation. Mm-hmm. So, Alex, if. We both submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word. I'm guessing that if we're talking to each other, there will be respect, and the chance for heresy is going to be mm, pretty minimal. Yeah. and, and, or and non-existent. Gotta, you, know, you know, some people... See, there's a difference between ignorance of God's Word and rejection of God's Word. Like, the, the Trinity... You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there, there's one God, yet eternally existent in three centers of consciousness, three personalities, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You know, people have asked me, do you believe the Trinity? Yes. 
people say, do you understand the Trinity? Of course not. I don't understand it. I definitely believe it. You know, um, I had a caller call into a radio show who said they'd never heard of it. And they, they were a born again believer, but they'd never heard of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But, uh, you know, they eagerly received what we were teaching. It's one thing to be uninformed, but it's another thing to know and reject. For instance, there was a guy, he died. Bill, do you remember the name John Shelby Spong? Nope. Well, uh, good. <laughs> but um, I'm sad to say, I mean, he was a former Episcopal. He was, I mean, he was like wrong on everything, sadly, and he died, and I'm certain he did not know the Lord. But he, shortly before he died, four or five years ago, he said and he was a, an Episcopal bishop, uh, uh, an author. He was on Oprah. He was a clergy but he was not a Christian. And he said, quote, I've become convinced that we must put an end to teaching on the atonement or there will be no future for the Christian faith. Well, if we don't have, read 1 Corinthians 15, if we don't have a risen Savior who paid for our sins on the cross, we don't have a Christian faith. And, and Bishop Spong, and there's so many other liberals we could quote, but he said, quote, God is not a Christian, God is not a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, or Buddhist. I have my tradition, and I walk through my tradition, he said, but my tradition does not define God. Well, so we're living in a time, Bill, part of the reason I wanted to bring this up, and I certainly do thank you for giving me a platform from which to speak about this. We'll hear people very piously, very kindly say, well, you know what, you have your tradition and I have my tradition. Well, it's not my tradition, it's what God has shown us. There's, there's one person who claims to have the key to heaven, and he, he coupled that claim with an amazing level of proof, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. And he said, if you believe in me, you will have everlasting life, John 6:40. He said, if you reject this, you will die in your sins, John 8:24. So it's it, it sounds very polite and collegial to say, well, this does resonate with me. That doesn't. You have your tradition. I have my tradition. But we, the church, the the representatives of the Savior, we have to have the courage, and definitely the kindness. But the courage to say, here's what God says about how to be saved. Here's what God says. And God has his word preserved, miraculous, fulfilled prophecy. The Bible, like the Son of God, miraculously validated. The Bible, the word of God, miraculously validated. But irrespective of any of our opinions, here's what the Lord says. And the wisest thing we can do is follow it. Amen to that. I think of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. There were certainly a lot of false teaching going on, and there were people in the church starting to embrace it. And Paul was just emphasizing the supremacy of Christ in that. And just a great, great lesson. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I, I realize, you know, as a pastor, I've pastored two churches and spoken in 2000. I mean, literally. Uh, and I know it would be nice just to be able to get up and just say happy things, <laughs> you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, it's just one of the occupational hazards with the calling to proclaim uplifting positive things is also the calling to call out 
false things that, you know, we're to exhort, you know, but we are also to reprove that the Bible says, and we're to uh, call out that which is false. And um, I just, I feel like, yes, there's truth and that must be proclaimed, but yes, there's error and that must be condemned because we care enough about the eternal souls of people that we we dare not risk them leaving this world without the truth of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And Alex, the best defense out there is to know the Word of God. Amen. That's true. Um, immerse yourself in God's Word, and not only will you learn, like you know, Second Timothy four verse two, but you'll become passionate about it. Um, the the longer I've read the Bible, and the more that I, you know, reflect and with the help of the Holy Spirit, try to live it, know it, proclaim it, internalize it, pass it on to others, the more in love with Scripture, um, you know, I am. Yeah. And, and I think every, every true believer would concur. Uh, I would agree. Thank you so much. That was an interesting topic, and I, I've enjoyed exploring it with you, and I appreciate you coming on the show today, Alex. Hey, thanks, Bill, and you thank you for Faith Radio. You bet. Dr. Alex McFarlane has been my guest and if you would like to learn more about Alex, you can go right to his website, alexmcfarland.com. If you want to receive a daily email featuring a scripture graphic, you can sign up for the verse of the day at myfaithradio.com. I think you should do it. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.